Welcome to In the Public Interest, a podcast from Wilmer Hale. I'm John Walsh. And I'm Brendan McGuire. John and I are partners of Wilmer Hale, an international law firm that works at the intersection of government, technology, and business. This podcast takes you behind the scenes of current events and discusses the legal and public policy challenges at the heart of the issues. COVID-19, policing and racial justice, climate change, elections, and more. There's a lot going on in the world, and we're here to shed a little light and bring you the perspectives of those working right in the thick of it. Although you'll hear from us each episode, we'll often pass the mic to other Wilmer Hale lawyers, special guests, and friends of the firm who are directly involved in wrestling with these issues. In our first episode, I am joined by Wilmer Hale partner Debo Adegbele and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot for a look behind the scenes of the 2020 U.S. Conference of Mayors to get her take on the future of policing and racial justice reform. This interview was recorded in mid-October before the election. We hope you enjoy it. We are absolutely thrilled that our very first guest on the Wilmer Hale podcast is Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago. Mayor Lightfoot is the 56th mayor of Chicago and has become a national authority for her work on improving policing and promoting equal justice in America's cities. We are also joined today by my partner, Debo Adegbele, the co-chair of our anti-discrimination practice and a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Debo and a team from Wilmer Hale recently assisted Mayor Lightfoot in the U.S. Conference of Mayors a nonpartisan organization of cities across the country in drafting a report with practical recommendations to address police reform and racial justice. Mayor Lightfoot and Debo, thank you both for being here today. Debo, I will turn it over to you and the mayor. Thanks so much, Brendan, and welcome, Mayor Lightfoot. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Mayor Lightfoot, you have substantial experience in dealing with law enforcement and policing and have been immersed in these issues in many different capacities first as a federal prosecutor, then as the chief administrator for the Chicago Police Department's Office of Professional Standards, and later as the chair of the Police Accountability Task Force, and now, of course, as mayor. In light of all of these experiences, I'd like you to describe how they've contributed to your readiness to be mayor, and then speak to how these experiences shape your understanding of policing and public safety. Well, having seen a, a range of different issues that confront us on a daily basis from a lot of different angles, I feel like it gives me broad experience and perspective uh, to really work through the nuances of policy and other issues. I also, uh, because of the experience that I've had in the area of policing, know a lot of the folks that are really on the front lines and pressing on uh, police reform and accountability issues, which are still front and center of some of the challenges that we face um, in our city. I also say just generally that my experience as a lawyer and problem solving, really helping clients uh, work through some of their dip most difficult issues, whether they are, were public or not, I think that experience also has really significantly aided me um, as a mayor. Probably drives my law department a little crazy because I, I, I speak their language and I ask hard questions, but I feel like my background and experience um, has prepared me, not, not for a global pandemic, because I don't think anybody uh, expected that, but in managing and navigating some of the toughest issues, knowing that we've got to think about things in a very holistic way, understand who the stakeholders are, what the ecosystem is. So a lot, a lot of those nuts and bolts of 
how do you get from where you are to where you want to be and who do you need to bring along on the journey with you? I've had a lot of experience in addressing those issues. So I take it that you brought all of that to your leadership role this summer in heading up the working group of the Conference of Mayors on Policing and Racial Justice Reform. Can you tell us a little bit about what work uh, the working group undertook and what that process was all about? Well, yes. Um, number one, I think one of the primary uh, missions and values of the conference is making sure that mayors are at the table when big issues are happening, particularly issues that affect governance of cities. Sometimes policies uh, are formulated at the national level without a, enough consideration of how they're actually going to be implemented at the local level and what role mayors are going to play. So when this conversation uh, really took flight around police reform and accountability, what we were seeing at the national level was not a lot of consideration uh, for mayors having us at the table and making sure that our voices uh, were in the policies that were being formulated by the federal government. So we took this as an opportunity to really step up and put down a marker, both in terms of policy making and making sure that we were at the table, but also to equip our fellow mayors with a really nuts and bolts and pragmatic resource guide as they were grappling with these issues. No cities in the same place were all at a different point on that journey, but we wanted to make sure that we had something that was practical and relevant uh, for mayors and police chiefs as they grappled with the issues that were going on in cities and towns all across this country. And who was on the working group? So the working group was divided between three mayors, myself, Mayor John Cranley of Cincinnati, and Jane Castor of Tampa, who also has the unique experience of previously having been the police chief in Tampa and now the mayor of the city, as well as police chiefs uh, from Phoenix, from Baltimore, and from uh, South Carolina. So we got a very well-rounded, uh, I think, and robust discussions. And of course, uh, the work of Wilmer Harrell is essential in helping us really get organized, formulate our policies. And I think aside from really taking the laboring oar and drafting the final report, Wilmer Hale was really invaluable in giving us the best practices from across the country on a range of different issues uh, that the working group was grappling with. I'm, I'm often struck that when people focus on police reform, and um, in particular when minority communities and Black and Latinx communities are calling for fair and equitable policing and a meaningful reset of the police community relationship, some read those calls to mean that these communities have a different objective regarding their public safety. Recognizing that all communities vary in some meaningful ways, what's your view? Well, that's a, a great question. And I think it's a very nuanced discussion, so I'll try to give a nuanced um, issue. You know this as well as I do. The people who raise their voices aloud us are not necessarily representative of the community. I'll give you a perfect example. Here in Chicago, like across the country, there's been a tremendous outpouring around police reform and accountability, a lot of people marching in the streets, some groups issuing a series of demands, some not. So trying to figure out where the different streams of conversation are going has been a challenge 
But interestingly, we had an incident on our city south side, a majority black neighborhood, Inglewood, that's seen a lot of violence. But it's also a neighborhood that's got a lot of engaged and active stakeholders. Um, and they actively work with the police and challenge the police to do better, but partner with them on initiatives that are driven by the community. There are a gr group of youthful protesters that came down to this Inglewood neighborhood following an incident involving the police with their own ideas about what should happen. And they ended up in conflict with the indigenous stakeholders in that neighborhood who effectively said, we don't need you. You're not from here. You don't know what's going on in our neighborhood. Please leave. And it was in a lot less polite terms than that. I thought that was really interesting and instructive. One, because this community was taking ownership of its own narrative around police reform and accountability. But it also told me that this group that came from the outside, who've been extraordinarily vocal and making lots and lots of demands and really trying to paint the conversation as black or white, literally and figuratively, really didn't have the pulse on at least one neighborhood. And I knew that, but it was, it was helpful and instructive for that to actually be played out in the public view. So when I hear these calls for defunding, because I've engaged with a lot of people on this, particularly we've got some um, democratic socialists on our city council, I've said to them, tell me what you mean by this. And do you literally mean you do not want any police in your ward? Because I can make that happen with a pen stroke. And universally it's like, no, 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 mayor, don't do that. But I think what, what I'm really hearing sorting through a lot of the noise is people saying we are sick and tired of not getting funded. We're sick and tired of being defunded. We're sick and tired of our needs as a community not being a funding and resource priority by city government. And we need jobs, we need good schools, we need healthcare, uh, we need all the things that a lot of communities take for granted, but that are scarce or non-existent supply in our communities. And I agree with that, which is why I ran on a platform of equity inclusion and seeing the entirety of our city, not just the wealthy majority white um, businesses and neighborhoods. Now we're not gonna be able to reverse those trends of decades in a year or a couple of budgets, but we've laid down important markers here in our city and we need to do a better job of articulating what it is that we have been doing in partnership with the community. But really this is about equitable distribution of resources, making sure the community voices are at the table from the beginning of these important discussions. Thank you for that. And I, I want to follow up because you raised the point of defunding and we're hearing a lot of talk in the context of police reform about folks who are calling for defunding and you've spoken to it. But, but I wanted to note that the Conference of Mayors report does not call for defunding but instead uses language about reimagining policing and rethinking about how funding is approached. Can you explain to us what, what that is? What is reimagining policing? And uh, can you confront the question of whether there's a need to reallocate any funding that, that's within police budgets? Well, look, I, to me, it's not an either or proposition. It's not fund the police um, and defund the community or fund the community and defund the police. It goes back to 
what I said before, which is making sure that there is an equitable distribution of resources so that communities have the tools that they need to be able to be vibrant uh, and safe. That's really bottom line what the goal should be, which is why I think the conference and I personally um, don't agree with this notion of defunding. I think we've got to figure out ways, and we can, to do both, to hold police departments accountable, uh, not think that as a policing and really a public safety strategy, that we put all of our eggs in the law enforcement first and only basket. You know this, that when you think about public safety and you think about the ecosystem of various levers that have to be pulled in order to create safe and vibrant, peaceful neighborhoods, you gotta use hard power, which is law enforcement, but you also really have to lean in to the soft power. And that's the piece that I think a lot of this defunding conversation is really emanating from, is making sure that the soft power is used, that community voices are going into this discussion about what it takes for a community to feel safe. And I also wanna say that the thing that I certainly have learned, I recently went back and looked at a speech that I gave at my law school in the fall of 2014. And this was in the wake of, you know, a lot of things that were happening nationally at that point. And I remember having a lot of discussion leading up to um, that speech around what is the appropriate job description for the police. And one thing that's been clear as budgets have gotten tight at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, the first thing to go is shredding of the social safety net. In other words, we haven't funded the things that we need to fund to stand up communities and really give individuals and families and neighborhoods the tools that they need to be able to realize their God-given talent. But the one actor from the government that is consistently present in communities is the police. And by default, and really as a result of our neglect, we have pushed off on the police a lot of responsibilities that they never signed up for, that they've never been trained for, and they're not the best answer to solve a community need. So I think part of the thing that we wanted to really raise the conversation around through the conference report is what's the proper role of the police? What should be the job description? And who should be the first responder when the community calls? One of the issues that um, many mayors and, and including you are confronting is that this year in some of our cities, there have, there's been a sharp increase in violent crime, yes. murders and shootings. Uh, this is an issue that you've faced in Chicago. It's, it's happening to, to some extent in other cities. And in light of these spikes, is, is it possible to strike a balance between the priority being placed on meaningful police reform and the urgent need to drive down violent crime, which itself very often has dramatic impacts in communities of color? Or is there a tension here that can or cannot be reconciled? Well, that's a great question. And let me take a moment to, I think, contextualize it. We cannot overstate the incredible impact that COVID-19 has had on public safety. Now, it may not seem like an obvious connection, but let me tease out why I think that that's so. I said earlier that in thinking about public safety, we have to think about the entire ecosystem. 
That ecosystem has many important parts. Of course, it's law enforcement, police, our federal partners, the criminal courts, the criminal prosecutors, those are all a part of that ecosystem. But equally important are other elements, some of which are, are specifically focused on public safety, others that add to public safety, like street intervention, right? Those are the folks that are on the front lines helping connect up the folks that are involved in gangs, the shooters, with an, a way out and helping to end the potential retaliation. So a lot of the spikes in violence in our city is gun violence, and it's gun violence that is a cycle of retaliation, a tit for tat. So street intervention is critical in stopping that. But equally important are community-based organizations, whether it's a YWCA, whether it's a Boys and Girls Club, whether it's a, a faith community that has food pantries and does a lot of outreach, whether it's addiction supports, mental health providers, every part of the public safety ecosystem has been dramatically impacted such that they pared back their offering, they have tried to struggle to provide services in a digital virtual world with limited success, and in, in Chicago, at least, uh, many of these resources, including the federal grand jury, including our jails, including our prosecutors, but also I'll call it the social safety net, really didn't start to come back online until late July. So the spikes that we've seen here, and I suspect that it's a similar story in New York or Baltimore, or St. Louis, the other places across the country that have also seen historic spikes, the ecosystem has been impacted by COVID because individuals have been sick, they've been fearful, and organizations and institutions have had to pare back and recalibrate how they deliver services in the midst of a global pandemic. So as I, as I think about the community calls for police reform and all that we've seen in the wake of George Floyd, I, I think that part of what we're hearing is a bit of community impatience and a concern that that some of these um, situations have recurred. Uh, there there have been efforts and pushes in the past, and I think it's fair to say that there have been many many reports uh, that have led to a working consensus about what best practices are in police and community relations, and yet sometimes change seems to be slow. And so I think that FDR once said to some folks that were pressing him on an issue of importance in, in, in his day, uh, the president said, um, I agree with you. I want to do it. Now make me do it. And so in the context of, of that quote, how can the public uh, that you've mentioned so many times as being an important piece of this story, how can the public play a meaningful role in helping ensure that the Conference of Mayors, member cities, embrace the reforms and practices that your report sets out? Well, I think they're doing it already. You mentioned at the outset that I had led the Police Accountability Task Force here in our city. That task force was stood up um, in the wake of a video showing the murder of a young black man by a white police officer. And when we started digging in and looking at what had happened over the arc of our city, we found, I think it was nine other efforts going back to the early part of the 20th century where 
There had been a flashpoint, some kind of blue ribbon panels was stood up, a lot of recommendations, well-intentioned, and then nothing. And we made a determination that our report was not gonna be relegated to the dustbin of history. But I think the moment that we're in now is very, very different than moments that we've been in before. We have not only this horrific murder of George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor. We've had so many instances, whether it's police-involved violence or otherwise, where people of color have been killed, have been attacked, and seemingly on the part of some with impunity, with no accountability. And unlike, I think, in previous times, this has happened all across the country. It's not isolated. And it's happening in close proximity to each other across the country. And I think that the people that have taken to the streets that are demanding that we respond have done a great service to all of us by prick, not only just pricking our consciousness, but demanding accountability and demanding change. There's a reason why there have been U.S. Conference of Mayors and a lot of other organizations that have weighed in on this issue. There's a reason why legislation has moved at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level to address these issues. I don't think this is gonna be a, a situation where the embers cool and we walk away without much to show for it. I think this is a very, very different time because of the horrific nature of George Floyd's murder, but the horrific nature of others who came before George Floyd, others that have come after George Floyd, and people's consciousness being raised and, and demanding an expectation of change and accountability on the part of public leaders that we ignore at our peril. Mayor, I have one final question for you. The Trump administration has a particular approach to local policing and the federal relationship with local police departments. That's a very polite way of putting it, yes. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The Obama administration had its own approach to federal and local policing um, relations and support. I I'm not gonna ask you to give either administration a grade. Instead, um, as we are in the midst of a presidential election, I'm going to ask you what your view is about what the proper calibration between the federal government's role and local policing efforts ought to be. It's, a, it's another great question, and I'll, I'll answer it this way. The extreme of you're on your own doesn't work, and we've seen that over the last four years. I look back even before the Obama administration to when the federal government first started getting involved in addressing pattern and practices under the Clinton administration and under the Janet Reno Department of Justice. That was on the other end of the spectrum. And I think there were things that didn't work in that approach either. But where I would say we really need a federal partner is first and foremost to listen to us, to understand the current state of affairs and the challenges that we are facing. We need supports, but we, of course, when necessary, we need to be um, held accountable. But I spent a lot of time talking to mayors across the country, and I think most of us, whether we are Democrat or Republican or independent or 
nonpartisan, the fundamental responsibility that we have to our cities is public safety. And obviously police departments play a role to play in that. But policing won't have any legitimacy if it doesn't have the hearts and minds of the people that the police are sworn to serve and protect. So we need a federal government that understands that, that is um, willing to work with us, not in a one size fits all approach, not one extreme or another, but charting a course that fundamentally is about supporting and uplifting communities, all with the goal towards making sure that all of our residents, no matter their background, no matter their circumstances, get to live in peace. If those are the guiding stars, then we're always gonna find the right approach. Mayor Lightfoot, thank you so much for your time. And I wish the residents of Chicago uh, the ability to live in peace. And I know you wish it for us in New York and across the nation. Thank you so much. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you, Mayor Lightfoot and Debo for sharing your time and your insights with us today. We're grateful to have two such accomplished leaders join us for our inaugural episode. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on In the Public Interest. We hope to see you on our next episode.